This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Last week, we talked about our need to see Jesus, and we spent some time looking at the account of Jesus as he appeared to two men as they walked to Emmaus on that resurrection morning. I know you remember the account. It's in Luke chapter 24, and it's an amazing picture of the four stages in our Christian life that we can discover from the two men's relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Stage one, of course, is the fact that they worshiped a dead Christ. We find this in Luke 24, verse 21. And they began that morning both sad and disappointed because somehow Jesus did not live up to their expectations. He was not a living Lord to them. He was still a dead Christ. He was a Christ who did marvelous things in the past. He was a Christ that even through his atoning death and sacrifice on the cross provided for them entrance into the presence of God and the forgiveness of their sins, yet he was anything other than living to them. Look what they said, Luke 24, verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. In spite of all the things that he did, in spite of all the the miracles that he performed, we had different expectations for him, and now he's dead, and now he's gone, and now we're on our way. Which leads us to stage two, where Jesus rebukes them because of their hardness of heart or their inability to believe. Luke twenty four twenty five, Jesus says this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. You've received all the evidence. You've received all the testimony. You heard the testimony of the two women, verses 22 and 24, who came back from the tomb and talked about an angelic visitation, yet you did not believe. You knew it was the third day, and that Jesus told you on the third day from the prophecy and life of Jonah that something was going to happen, yet you did not believe. You were on your way to Emmaus like you had given up, like you were going back to your old lives, like Peter and the handful of disciples did at the end of John when they went back fishing because you refused to believe. You even heard the testimony of Peter and John that came back from the tomb and confirmed it was exactly like the women said, yet you refused to believe. You were slow of heart to believe, and Jesus called them foolish ones. There are so many in the Christian church that are like that. Maybe some of you have struggled with that, that were committed to the cause, were committed to the virtues of Christ, were committed to the doctrine of Christ, and we thank him for what he has done in the past on the cross as a dead Christ, but we've never experienced him as the living Lord Jesus who transcends every aspect of our life. 
which brings us to phase three that we talked about last week. And that's when we have an experience. They were walking with Jesus. They were stopping for the night. Jesus was going to go further along. They asked him to stay. He broke bread. All of a sudden, they realized who it was, and they said in Luke 24, verse 32, did our heart not burn within us? Did we not feel this presence of the Lord? Did it not give us goosebumps? Did it not let us experience this peace that passes all understanding? Was it not an amazing mountaintop 10 out of 10 experience that we had with him? Jesus opened the scriptures and they began to see the truth of salvation, of eternal life, of who he was. They experienced some sort of heart burning within them, which was greater than anything they had ever felt before. And most Christians strive for stage three and remain there. But this is not the final stage. This is one of those high points where I had a high point three months ago and a high point in 2019, and then I had kind of a, um, I don't know, a, a plateaued period, and I didn't have another one of these experiences in 2015. Then I had two of them in 2013, and I look back at my life and I see these mountain peak experiences that I wish I could have again. So I listen to praise music and I go to church services that have calisthenics for worship, and I, I want to be surrounded by stuff that accentuates my emotional feeling. And so I search for the experience like a junkie, an adrenaline junkie, and marvel when I have them and long for them when I don't. But this is not the Christian life. Even here, they've never experienced the living Lord Jesus who remains in them forever. Which brings us to the next stage, Stage four, which is not our heart burning within us, but when the Lord actually gives us a revelation of himself. The two men had an experience, but not a full revelation of Christ. And it's only a revelation of Christ that can change lives. Now, they could have come back and said this, we saw Jesus, we experienced Jesus, we know about Jesus, and we believe in Jesus. And here's what we've learned, and here's what we've been taught, and here's what we've experienced. But very few can say, I have met Jesus, and I know Jesus, and I have a relationship with Jesus on an ongoing basis as my Lord and my Savior and my friend. That's what stage four is all about. Luke 24, verse 35, says that he was known to them. We knew Christ. They had this satisfied heart. They knew the one that was not just a dead Christ, but now a living Christ, a, a risen Christ, a, a Christ that now permeated every aspect of their life, a Christ that was their ambition, literally their obsession, just to serve and honor and get to know him. We also spoke of the steps and conditions of being that kind of person that the Lord reveals himself to, which is exactly where we are today. What we're going to be looking at is probably the most profound statement 
by Jesus and all of Scripture that describes the relationship we are to have with him and that he has with the Father. And it's a perfect picture of the type of person who is able to meet these conditions and meet these requirements. And, And by the way, just so you don't chafe at that, the Bible is full of conditions and requirements. You will seek me and find me when you seek me, here's the condition, with all your heart. That if you pray according to my will, that you have confidence that your prayers will be answered. There are conditions in those. We meet the condition and God responds. Are these if-then promises in Scripture. It's like laying ourselves down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is our reasonable service. And once we do that, we're able to receive the promise that God will renew our mind and reveal to us his absolute perfect will. These are conditions. And in John 15 that we're going to be looking at today, Jesus lays out for us in crystal clarity the conditions that need to be met for you and I to live the kind of Christian life that we have dreamed of on an ongoing basis, not just sporadic like in stage three where our heart burned within us and we had this mini revival because every time our heart burns with us, it seems in time it grows cold. And the key to the Christian life, the key to the abundant life that he was talking about is that we have this vibrant relationship with him on an ongoing basis, day in and day out. And the truth of that and the roadmap of that is found in John 15. So if you would, turn to John 15. I'm only going to read to you the first eight verses, but today we're probably only only going to be able to cover just one. But I want to set the scene for you. When these words were spoken, the Passover supper was completed, and probably Jesus had just inaugurated the Lord's Supper as a perpetual celebration and ordinance for the church with the bread and the wine when he said these words. Judas is gone. Jesus had already washed the disciples' feet. The disciples had already debated among themselves about who was the greatest in the kingdom. And I love these guys. I could really hang with these guys because that's exactly what I would be doing. I'd be just as carnal and just as fleshly as they are at this momentous event when Jesus said he earnestly, earnestly desired to celebrate this supper with them before he suffers. And those words fell on deaf ears because all they were interested in is seeing who was better than the other one. The garden was before him, the cross was before him, and Jesus spoke these words. Let me read them to you. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Jesus is laying out the components of this example. There's a vine, there's a vine dresser, there's fruit, and we're going to find out in a couple verses later that there are branches. Vine, vine dresser, fruit, and branches. The vine, of course, Christ identifies as himself in verse number one. I am the true vine, and God the Father is the vine dresser. He's the the gardener. He's the one that plants the vine. We see again in verse number one. 
I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Verse 2 talks about a branch, but we don't know who the branches represent until we get to verse number 5. And in verse number 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he talks about the fruit that we're to bear, and he talks about the way that we're to bear fruit, and the way that we're to please the Lord is by resting and abiding in him. Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bear fruits, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then he defines the branch. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. He used vine, branches, and vine dresser to describe this relationship between us and him and him and his father. Now, he could have used any example he wanted to, yet he chose this one. If you'll study the scripture, you'll find that Jesus uses dozens of examples to try to describe various relationships we have with him. He uses earthly examples to describe like spiritual realities. For example, he talks about us being the children of God. God is the father and we are the children. It's a family example. In, we find that in the book of Romans, for example. In Ephesians, he talks about us being members of a household, the master, the father's household. All through the epistles, there's this idea of a master and slave, a master and a doulos, a, a voluntary bond slave. We have the imagery of a king and his servants. In John 10, he's the shepherd and we're the sheep. And later on in the epistles, he's the husband and, and we're the bride. There are many examples that he used, and he could have used any of those examples, yet he chose vine and branches and vine dresser for a reason. I'm kind of amazed at some of the things he didn't use. He didn't use a rancher or a cowboy or cattle who was driving the cattle from behind, making noise to kind of frighten them to move on. That's not the description of our relationship with the father. He didn't use like a pet owner that has a kitten, this lovely little kitten, this cuddly kitten, and just purrs until he becomes a cat. And once the kitten turns into a cat, he wants nothing to do with the pet owner anymore. Apropos for some believers, but that's not the what he used. He didn't use a farmer trying to herd a bunch of mindless chickens. He didn't use another agrarian example like an apple and tree and apples or, or stuff of that nature. He used a vine and a branch, and he did it for one reason and one reason only. 
because it perfectly described the relationship between the Son and the Father and each of us. It is a divinely inspired example, and it is marvelous, the truth that's contained just in these first eight verses. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Before we begin to take a look at this, and we'll be looking at this for the next couple weeks, I want to pause just a moment and remind you that this is the last of the seven I am statements Jesus makes that kind of give structure to the book of John. In other words, John is built around these seven I am statements, where Jesus is identifying with God of the Old Testament at the burning bush with Moses, where he revealed himself as the covenant-keeping God, and who do, who do I tell them you are when they ask? And you say that I am the living one, I am the existing one, I am the ever-present one, I am that I am. I'm not I was or I will be, but I am that I am. So the book of John is structured around these seven I am statements. This, of course, being the last one. And before we jump into John 15, we need to take just a a moment or two and look at these seven I am statements to give you a flow of what's happening here. The first one that we find, of course, in John chapter 6, verse 35, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Let me read that to you. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He not only says it here in verse 35, but he also says it in verse 48 and repeats it again in verse 51. Let me read John 6, 48 through 51 to you so you can get the whole feel of the context of him claiming to be the bread of life. And of course, this is compared with the manna from the Old Testament during the wilderness wanderings. Here's what he says, John 6, 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Note in this passage, I am the living bread. I'm not dead bread. I am the living bread. I am the living Christ. In this chapter, and with all the other I am statements, Jesus now is establishing a pattern that continues all through John's gospel to reveal himself as the Son of God and to identify himself with the I am that I am in the Old Testament. And that pattern is the fact that he makes a statement about who he is, I am the bread of life, and then backs that statement up by doing something only God can do. In this case, Jesus states that he is the bread of life just after he fed 5,000 in the wilderness. John 6, 1 through 14 records that. In other words, I am the bread of life because I have just done only what the bread of life could do. 
we see the same pattern in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus says in verse number 12, I am the light of the world, the second I am statement. Let me read that to you. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. But he also repeats that in John 9, 5, where he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This second I am statement in John's gospel comes right before he heals a man born blind. We find that in John 9, 1 through 7. And so Jesus not only says he's the light of the world, he proves it. In other words, he again makes the claim to be God, I am that I am. And then he backs that up with something that only God can do. Which brings us to the third and fourth one. And we find the third and fourth I am statements of Jesus in John chapter 10, which is a marvelous chapter that you really need to study on your own, talking about Jesus as the shepherd and us as sheep. He says this in John 10, 7 through 9. He talks about the fact that he is the door. I am the door. Here's what he says to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the fold of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am twice now the door. If anyone enters by me through the door, he will be saved and will go in and will go out and find pasture. In this I am statement, Jesus stresses that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven by any other means than Christ. Jesus' words in this passage are couched in the imagery of a sheepfold. He is the only one and the only way to enter the fold. Again, this is in John 10. This is an incredible teaching of our Lord and really demands careful study. And I would encourage you to add John chapter 10 to whatever Bible study you're doing this week, because you will be amazed at these two I am statements. That was number three, I am the door. Number four is I am the good shepherd. Same chapter, few verses later, verses 12 through 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And how is the good shepherd described? The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Again, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. These two words are gnosko. And there's so much truth in there that unfortunately, we're not going to be able to unpack right now. But with this I am statement about being the good shepherd, Jesus portrays his great love and his great care and his willingness to lay down his life for those who he loves. He calls himself the good shepherd. And in doing so, he unmistakably takes for himself one of God's titles in the Old Testament in Psalm chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd. 
The next I am statement is found in John 11, verse 25, in this incredible event where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Remember the setting. Lazarus is dead. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Jesus comes. Both Mary and Martha are discouraged, and Mary and Martha are heartbroken. If you would have been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. And Jesus then says, but I am the resurrection. I am the one who gives life. And Jesus claims who he was in this I am statement and then turned around and proved it. Again, We see that Jesus' teaching was not just empty talk. He wasn't just giving some sort of semantics. He was actually backing up what he said and substantiating it with action that only God can do. Because Jesus is the one that holds the keys to Hades and death, it says in Revelation 1.18. So in raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus showed how he could fulfill God's promise to ancient Israel from Isaiah 26, where it says that your dead shall live, God's dead shall live, and they shall arise. Because apart from Jesus, there is no resurrection. There is no eternal life because he is I am the resurrection and the life. The sixth I am statement is found in John 14. And if you remember in John 14, Jesus had told his disciples earlier that he was leaving them. They were very discouraged. They were distraught. And Jesus gives those comforting words that we use at funerals all the time. John 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And it talks about in my father's house are many dwelling places, many mansions, and Christ is preparing a place for us and will receive us unto himself. And that goes well until he says in verse number four, and where I go, you know, and the way you know, and Philip says, we don't know. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus gives this sixth I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This powerful I am statement of Christ is packed with meaning. I mean, Jesus is not saying that he is one way, like on a spoke where we're all on the outer edge and we're moving towards the center, and to some people it's nirvana, and to some people it's a higher consciousness, and to us it's heaven with Jesus. He is the only way, the only way. And Jesus here, by saying he is the truth, he's fulfilling Psalm 119, verse 160, where it says the entirety of your word is truth. So he's proclaiming his identity with the word of God. We see that in John 1.1 and John 1.14, that he is alone as a source of life. He is the creator and sustainer of all life. He is the giver of eternal life. He, he holds all the universe together, as it says in Hebrews chapter 1. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Which brings us to the seventh I am statement. I am the true vine, and my father is 
the vine dresser. Again, verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Before we jump into the seventh one in John 15, I want you to know that there are two other examples in John where he makes these I am statements. But these I am statements are not metaphors. Rather, they're his declaration of God's name, and he applies those declarations of God's name as the I am that I am to himself. The first instance comes as Jesus' response to a complaint about the Pharisees. We find this in John 8, verse 58. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. They're saying that we can trace our lineage back to Abraham. Are you greater than Abraham? And Jesus says, I knew Abraham. I saw Abraham. I, but before Abraham was, I preexisted. I am. And your Bibles have that capitalized because what he's basically saying is, I am that I am. I am God. The contrast here is startling. Abraham was, but I am. And there's no doubt that the Jews at that time knew exactly what he was saying, because verse 59 says they took up stones to kill him for proclaiming he is equal with God. The second instance of this is when Jesus is in the garden anguishing. And then all of a sudden he realizes Judas was coming. And so Judas comes, his disciples surround him. There's all these temple guards that are there with torches and swords. And he asks them, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. This is in John 18, verse 4 and 5. And Jesus replied, I am he. And if you look at your Bibles, you'll see that he is italicized. It's added by our translators to help us understand a little better. But what he literally said was, I am. And do you remember what happened? John 18, 6. And when he had said to them, I am, italicized he, they drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus was applying God's covenant Old Testament name to himself, he demonstrated the power over his enemies and the power over his foes and showed that his surrender to them was totally voluntary because he is God. He is the I am. If you've seen me, he says, you've seen the Father. But let's look at this final I am statement and the amazing truth it introduces for us in John chapter 15. Let's look at that together. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Before we go any further, you need to understand that the central truth that the Lord is trying to reveal to us in these passages, through verse 8 all the way down to the verse number 11, is not about the vine and branches. It's about the relationship between the vine and the branch. More specifically, the, the responsibility of the branch to the vine. And that word is to abide. The importance of resting and abiding and staying connected to the vine, to the living Lord Jesus. I mean, look how many times that word is used. How many verses? Over 15 times it's used. And look at these verses. Verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. 
Later on in verse 4, unless it abides. Verse 5, he who abides. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, you will abide in my love. And it goes on and on and on. As a matter of fact, in verse 11, we have the word remain. May your joy remain, but that word is really abide. So we find all through this passage that the meaning of it was to communicate the message to them and to us that the Lord wants us to abide and rest in him. But Jesus defines himself as the true vine. I am the true vine. Not just a vine. Verse 5, it's just a vine. But here it's the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And the word true here is a contrast. It means what is real as compared to what is a type or a symbol. It means perfect as distinct from imperfect. It means genuine rather than what is counterfeit. In other words, there's a contrast here. And Jesus is saying, I am the genuine, I am the perfect, I am the real compared to all these false substitutes. And the easiest way to understand that is to see how this word is used elsewhere in Scripture, the true vine. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 1.9. It says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols, to the real from the counterfeit, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The contrast from idols to the true God, from the false to the genuine. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And then the contrast is found in the very next verse, verse 21, where it says, Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. So we have, he is true. We are in him who is true. He is the true God as contrast to idols. Back to John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So what is the nature of a vine? What can we learn by this example that Christ gave us before we even get into the text What can we learn about why he chose vine and branches and a vine dresser to describe this kind of relationship? I want you to think about these as I share them with you. These are the thoughts that I had this week preparing this. A vine is planted by the vine dresser, and he plants it wherever the vine dresser desires. The vine has no say where he's planted. A vine's job is to produce fruit wherever the vine dresser chooses. The vine, of course, is cared for by the vine dresser, and the vine is totally dependent on the vine dresser. As a matter of fact, the weight of the fruit is so great that the vine dresser has to tie up the branches just to make sure it can handle it. A vine does not do well 
on its own. The vine's only function in life, the only purpose of the existence of a vine is to produce fruit. Not shade, not leaves, but just fruit. If a vine doesn't produce fruit, it is worthless. But the fruit that the vine produces is not for the benefit of the vine or the branches. The fruit is for the benefit of the vine dresser and the vine dresser alone. The vine itself consists of root and stalk and branches and fruit. In other words, all of the vine is known of the vi- is known as the vine. The roots are part of the vine. The stalk that we see above ground is the vine. The branches are the vine, and the fruit is the vine. And as I shared with you before, the vine must be positioned to receive the correct amount of sunlight in order to produce fruit, and a vine cannot do that by itself. It produces fruit only for the glory of the vine dresser. And, and the vine is the glory of the vine dresser only if it produces fruit. The only function of the branch is to bear the fruit produced by the vine for the glory of the vine dresser. The branch is good for nothing else. The wood is too brittle to be used for any other reason than just bearing fruit. In the process of producing fruit, pruning takes place. And pruning is when the vine dresser comes and cuts off dead branches that consume needed nutrients but produce no fruit in order that those nutrients might be used by branches who produce fruit. Remember the parable of the servants and the talents, for that's all the vine does, produce fruit. And when this pruning takes place, it makes the vine produce more fruit on the branches who are able to bear it. Jesus said, he is the vine and we are the branches, and the father is the vine dresser. And our job is to remain attached or abide to him, the vine, in order to allow him to produce fruit in us for no other reason than the Father's glory. We are to do nothing else. Nothing else. Understanding this context, understanding the the characteristics and the nature of a vine and branches and fruit and a vine dresser. Let me read this text to you one last time. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Why? For by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, 
so you will be my disciples. Note this in closing. All that the vine is, so is the branch. What makes up the branch is the same substance that makes up the vine. It just has a specific function. It is simply part of the whole. We are in Christ. The branch is of the same nature as the vine. The branch produces nothing. It just bears the fruit of the vine. We don't produce spiritual fruit in our life. The Spirit does. But if we stay connected to Christ, He allows us to bear that fruit for the glory of the Father. The vine cannot produce fruit without the branches. And the only function of the vine is to produce fruit. And the only function of the branches is to bear the fruit the vine produces for the glory of the Father. It's a simple connection here. As the vine is totally dependent on the vine dresser, so the branch is totally dependent on the vine. And as the vine dresser loves and cares for his vine, let this one sink in. So he also loves and cares for the branches of his vine, which are part of his vine, which bear the fruit. Let me rephrase that. As the father loves and cares for his son, so he also loves and cares for you. And to drive that point home, let me just close by reading one incredible verse to you in John 15, verse 9. As the father loved me in the manner in the capacity, in the depth, in the intensity, in the same way the Father loved me, Jesus says, I have loved you. What do we do with that? Abide in my love. Abide in my love. As we begin to explore this relationship, would you rest today and abide today in the fact that you are loved with an intense love, the same kind of love the father has for his son that the vine dresser has for his vine, that you have bold access to the father through the blood of Jesus Christ, and that there's no sin, no shortcoming, no failure that you have ever done that is not forgiven, and you're not shown grace, and it's as if it never existed in the mind of the Father, for he has chosen to remember our sins no more. Be blessed with that today. Let me pray. 